Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. You never know how thick empty can get until it's on you, until you lift up acres of untilled abandoned fields, hold them upside down, and ask the fat weeds that fall out for a story. This program features the work of 2017 writer Quentin Baker. He discussed his work with curator Jordan Amani Keith in the Jack Straw Studio. Well, looking through your work and reading about your statement of intention for the Jack Straw Project, what really jumped out at me was your choice to use erasure Hmm. as uh, an approach to to creating the text for the project. And I was wondering if you would talk about that choice, especially in the context of the slave revolt in 1841, and tell us a little bit about that and if there's an overlap in making that choice. Yeah, so... A lot of the choices that I made for this project just were, they were natural outgrowth from uh, my research. So originally when I set out, it was it was just going to be like a sort of a straight research historical project. And I was just going to see what came out of it. But when I came across the Senate document, as I was reading through it and um, like reading the language of this official document really concerned about property loss and um, the, like the British government overstepping their bounds. Uh, just just seeing that language, knowing that that was the only official record or language at all around this revolt, it felt like what came to me was that what I really wanted to do was sort of an erasure of the erasure because this erasure, this document was already such an erasure of the people on the ship and the these enslaved Americans because it was all testimony and perspective from either government officials or um, the ship members, the shipmates. So just to see the way that they were describing it and talking about it, it made me want to dig through their language for something that I felt was... Uh, more accurate, or um, to sort of an undo the erasure that they did with with these blackout poems of my own. So in eighteen forty one, there was this revolt of enslaved folks mm-hmm. who were successful. Yes, they did it. And <laughs> could you tell us about that and how yeah. you came to decide to research that at all? A lot of my work is research based, and so when I'm when I'm in between projects or trying to figure out a project, I will just be diving into areas that interest me. So I had just gone to New Orleans for my sister's wedding, and you know, like New Orleans is crazy because you'll you'll be walking down the street and they'll be like, "Oh, this is a building where they used to." house slaves and have slave auctions. And so um, like there'll be like monuments and all this stuff. And so then I, I, knew, I had this book um, back in Seattle, um, Soul by Soul, which was a, a book about um, the secondary slave market. And I was like, well, let me jump into this. I've been wanting to read about this for a while. Let me jump into it. And there's just a quick aside in that book about this revolt in 1841, which involved a ship called the Creole. 
sailing from Virginia to New Orleans. And so it was always interesting to me that there weren't more revolts, but there was this one, and it was led by, really it was the, it was the name. His name is Madison Washington, the leader of the slave revolt. And it's just like, could you... Could you write a better story? No. Um, but his name was Madison Washington, and, and we don't know a lot about him. Frederick Douglass actually wrote his only piece of fiction about this story. It's a novella called The Heroic Slave. But And there's a, a lot of novellas because it became like an abolitionist's battle cry. It was like this because it it's happening like right when the abolitionist movement is ramping up in the 1840s. But Madison Washington had actually already escaped slavery and was living in Canada. And the story goes, and we don't know if it's true, but the story goes is that he went back down to Virginia to get his wife because he was able to escape, but he could not bring her back. And he'd been up there trying to earn enough money to buy her back. So anyway, so I just got caught up in the story and I wanted to find out more. Um, and that led me down a bunch of different roads. But really it was it was Madison Washington and the fact that that really was the fact that I didn't know about it because this is the only successful large scale slave like slave revolt involving American born enslaved people. Like we all know about in that Turner insurrection and the Underground Railroad, but this was like single event, you know, we all know about Denmark Vesey's failed revolt and all these other things that didn't didn't quite pan out, but 135 enslaved people got their freedom through this and then dispersed mostly to Jamaica. And so it was like, why? <laughs> you know, I know they made a movie about Amistad, um, and actually the proximity between this event and Amistad was interesting because Amistad, of course, those were not American slaves. Those were freshly captured, illegally captured, because the transatlantic slave trade had been abolished by this time, illegally captured West Africans and, you know, the United States was sort of grandstanding in the Amistad case because this was not their property and this was involving Spain and Cuba and a bunch of other people. But shortly thereafter, you have the Creole case and no, none of that grandstanding for freedom with the Amistad. Here, they're trying to get their money back. They're trying to sue Britain and they did actually sue and win the case and they got 200-some thousand from Britain. But um, the absence of any awareness that I had of this event to me was telling, mm. you know, because we, we know about Amistad and this sort of grandstanding moment in American history, but we really, like, mo I, I've, I think I've only uh, talked to one person, and I've been talking to a lot of people about this since I started running this project, one person who'd heard about the Creole Revolt. And, um, and that's crazy to me, you know, because this is, it's, just on its face, it's a great story. So will you read an excerpt um that you've brought. Yeah. On this ship, what can be named whole? We sleep on a fixed pattern of chipped stone. We sleep bricked in with our beginnings. The first bite of pork fat, first tobacco leaf pressed between everything heavy. We sleep in the finished sun. We sleep through ruined moon. We sleep in uniform, sewn in. We sleep allergic to ether. We sleep badly behaved. We sleep allergic to home. Frantic return. We sneeze sent towards sheets. We sleep in constant bloody arrival. We sleep and sleep. We sleep with none of the master's manufactured peace. Soundless guillotine. Swallowing bloom. For people who don't know what the process of creating an erasure poem is like, would you 
tell us a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, everybody who um, who does erasure has their own process. And, um, but what I like to do is uh, is to locate an anchor word, you know, or a phrase on the page that really interests me. Um, and then I try to go out from there and find things that can connect and, and correspond with that. But a lot of times the word that will draw me, like if um, – I think one of the there's there's all these recurring phrases a because this is this is language from the eight, 1840s so like the language is a little it's different and it's a little stilted and this is like a senate document so it's professional you know like government political language but sometimes it's the repetition of a phrase that I've seen on every page and then I want to avoid that or sometimes it's like just trying to find something new like what's new on this page what's new from that stands out from these other documents. But really, you just, you have a sea of language. And um, the main thing is that instead of starting with a blank page and finding the language yourself, you're making these choices from nothing. In an erasure poem, you're unmaking someone else's choices, which is an entirely different muscle and an entirely different way of engaging with, with words. Will you read another? Yeah. This poem is um, borrows some language from Henry Dumas. Uh, so these three lines start the poem right here. Send no drummers yet, build no fires yet, drink no water yet, and hold, paused in a holy moment of redrawn solidity, blacken the posture of intent, the flexed finger above a bastard knot of muscle. When hasn't there been an oil to us? Black, wet of black, vicious, viscous, black of black, ceremonial burn, barreling of black. We move the watched body, cinema for bullet, blood trail artist, marching vertical. Our country is going through significant upheaval, unrest. How do you hope your work will speak to people in these times? Yeah, so the the funny thing about <laughs> I I feel I feel no different, you know, today than I did 3 months ago or 4 months ago or a year ago. I think what I hope is that to me this moment represents uh, chaos and chaos, a moment of high entropy, and that is, a, I think, a, an opportunity for a shift in the way that people understand things. Because as much as I loved, you know, Barack and Michelle, we were still talking about a imperialist, white supremacist society. You know, like there's there's no way around the settler, colonial, violent history and reality of this country that's been built here. And so when you have somebody who's sort of a naked demagogue, who is stripped the civility from the violence that we've become accustomed to, then there becomes an opportunity for people who were fooled a little bit by that, who don't feel the daily impact. Because, you know, black folks are still getting shot in the street when Obama was president. 
Uh, last time I checked, all the prisons were still there. You know, and so, like, you know, we're still here occupying indigenous land. We still don't recognize treaties and trial. Like, all these things have this, this imperial engine kept going. Um, so what I hope, I hope my work does now more so than, than, than a few months ago is that I hope people are more receptive to it because there's a, it's, it's always been important for me to have sort of a, a historicity to my work to show the long arc of this. And so I would hope that while we're all under threat now from the incompetence and sort of mean narcissism that we're seeing play out in the White House, I hope that while, while we're all under threat, people who were threats themselves and still are threats in some way can be led to a a broadening of their perspective now that they know what it feels like to be under threat, maybe for the first time. Uh, because there's a lot of people in this country and across the world who have been threatened by the American experiment and uh, would welcome a respite from that. Would you read us another selection? Of course, of course. Um, this poem has has lines from a different Norbese Filler book and then also Don Lundy Martin. Early blooming brown legs, curls like copra left to dry, and this ship pump like lung, panoptic on a captive ocean. Crush your strings into a single acre. Play that land music, that away and gone joint, hard distance. Ain't nobody coming back, even those Himalayan in their uplift, in a long elevator of salt and blood still feel the lurch, the long hand on what's named holy, a yank to the rigging, to the mainsail, to the necessary, unfinished. I'll thank no one for the timber and lilt, but mammoth voice is our voice, the other side of illness. Wow. Um, what offering would you make to a young writer who is navigating difficult material like this in um, terms of the research and writing, but especially, as you said, um, when you see similarities between the survival techniques of uh, enslaved people and yourself, ourselves, I wonder what you would say. Um, <laughs> run, hide sometimes, like, don't be afraid to run away. Because if, if, if you really, if you're really committed to this, if you're really like dedicated, you will come back. But, uh, an old, an old therapist said to me that you are your own instrument, uh, and no one's going to take care of you, but you. So I think, um, the hardest lesson for me to learn, because for me, like, it was really hard for me to not write for a day or to not research for a day. I would just work constantly all the time. And it was, it was obliterating me. Like when I finished the manuscript that became my first book, like I, there were, there was like, I think a three month period where I was just engaged every day and I was writing a lot, but I was also like, I was doing horribly personally. And so there's a, like my advice to a young writer 
engaging in this kind of work would be there. There's a there's a desire to do it all, to do as much as you can, and to get it all out of you as fast as you can. And I would, but I, and I would say that taking a break, letting the field lie fallow, is part of the process. Now we'll hear a selection from Quentin's live reading. Calling all prophets. Today I am Ezekiel, catching visions of the four-faced cherubim, rolling the barrel wheels within wheels of God's throne. I am eating the scroll of judgment with a bull-bodied angel holding a knife to my throat going blind and dumb in the name of faith. Words of woe coat my teeth like raw honey. God's throne zooms omnidirectional, and I am compelled to follow. Today's afternoon march reveals the recluse son to be a prophet as well. She says, be self-made. Find a way out. You can be a victim or a staircase. Climb and dive past heaven's sluice gate. The tiniest sparrow also a prophet, says to the bird-bodied angels, you will die an idolater's death. The Institute of Divine Metaphysical Research says, give me your fucking money. I am God's grenade pen, herald of explosions, ever spreading edge. It is my fate to experience my fate without really knowing it, to spend my last breath saying, oh, <laughs> it's International Women's Month, right? That's every month. <laughs> Say that. Say that. It's International Women's Year, right? <laughs> um, this poem is about um, a woman named Mary Turner. Her talk enraged them. Savannah Morning News, 20th of May, 1918. You never know how thick empty can get until it's on you, until you lift up acres of untilled abandoned fields, hold them upside down and ask the fat weeds that fall out for a story. It is the story of a woman, black and reaching. Mary is 21, eight months pregnant, though her face belies any weakness from the moon she swallowed. Her man just been folded into branch weight, caught in a wide sweep launched by another nigger's etiquette breach. Now full of grief and baby, she goes calling for warrants. Black and public, Mary yells for names on receipts, trying to fix in her mind what justice looked like. This is also the story of men, white and sodden, wet like only settlers can get, dripping from the deep dive of putting niggers in an ocean of dirt. They want the, they the names Mary wants. They settlers, they discoverers, they settle, they discover her. She run, on the Sabbath at noon, they take her to a quiet bridge for a history lesson. Settler records say we own where we make landfall. In this cloister, sanctum for string up, Mary hangs by her ankles. Settler records say the moment we touch begins inhabitants. Oil, gasoline, turn her clothes, skin to sport. Settler records say, be still, be our peace and stay live. But Mary done provoked, and now her body is barely a body. 
rather flesh made frontier, made borderland, made supply line, made trading post. Settler records say we revise colony with powder, good metal. So they redraw Mary with a hog splitting blade, shape her into a primer on what it looked like when a black woman speak. And the last one. Um, <clears throat> Are y'all familiar with Sarah Bartman? Yeah. Yeah. Known as also by the pejorative hot and top Venus. Um, after she died, they kept her remains in a French museum until 1996, I think. It's called the Museum of Man for Sarah Bartman. A dark theme keeps me here, with you, Sarah, in this museum of man. I am your big-dicked son, your big-assed daughter, public pool body, playground, metro transit body, shitty inheritance for rough white hands. Some days I'm tall as God's hairline, full of dark like good sex. Other days I'm tall like a hanged thief, brown as your buried child. There will never be a moon or season free from the heritage of your harvested skeleton. But you're more than dismemberment, aren't you? Men fucked you, wanted to lick the elongated labia of the missing link. Men fucked you, wanted to own freedom, wanted their wind to sit in the collar mark of a martyr. Continents away from tribe and eastern cape, you put your voice on public record. I'm content to make my money in the streets. I won't save you, Sarah, and I won't place a cup on the ridge of your ass. But may I sit with you? Will you tell me about your river, your love, the small ways we say no? Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keen and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>